With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. And as we do every Wednesday morning at this time, it is time to catch up with me, old mate, Marty. Marty Gibson, how are you? Good morning, Marie. How are you? Good morning. I've got to start using more of a radio voice. (laughs) Oh, we've actually, it was nice. We caught up on the weekend. You cooked a very nice breakfast. Thank you. Mm, All right. Oh, it was excellent. It was excellent. You're still there and I I, uh, snuck over for a couple of days to to Gizzy, so it was good to go back to the old stomping ground. So we were able to have a little brief media matters catch up before this morning, so that's always a good thing. It's so fascinating. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. It'll be interesting to see how everything's sort of settled out. Mm. And I have to say there is a lot of tantrum throwing going on at the moment, and it's not seemly. It's not seemly, but it's calculated, Mm. isn't it? I've talked before about sacred anger. It's it's very much uh, something out of the Islamic playbook where if you burn a Quran, they'll set fire to embassies on other continents, it's calculated to make people think very carefully before criticizing or wrong. And it never goes two ways. There's a bit of a valve where they are not nearly so sensitive as to insults they might give other people as they are to insults they receive themselves, which is always dangerous as well. Yeah. Well, it's quite fascinating because, of course, I don't think this coalition is going to, well, they haven't had a honeymoon period so far, and I don't believe they're going to. Thomas Coughlin seemed to think that they're in this golden period where they're able to sort of throw that, this is how things are, and this is what we've been left with. Um, And Nicola Willis has had a little of that. But to be brutally honest, I think everybody knows what a cop case they have inherited. So I think that's, you know, it's like minutes taken as read. I don't know they do. You reckon? I don't think. When Grant Robertson was talking about all they'd achieved with his little soup slurping mouth, no one ever said to him, hey, well, yeah. As I often say, you borrowed $100 billion of extra debt. You took it from $60 billion to $100 billion. And so, yeah, Cochrane said uh, she has an uphill mountain to climb. Unlike the former Labor, go- Labor government's Sunshine and Rainbows mini-budget of December 2017, which boosted family incomes and created new universal benefits like the Best Start and winter energy payments, Willis's budget looks to primarily be one of cuts. Yeah. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. Like, like prudent they were fiscal spending management. That extra $100 billion of borrowed money, and now she's got a pay a bit of it back and she doesn't have it to spend. And I mean, there's a part of me that's cynical enough to think, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. Labor spanks the money with nothing to show for it to create climate change. And then uh, Nash will go, oh, look at what those bad people did. Right, we're going to need some austerity. And that's how the um, financial position of New Zealanders has been steadily ground down. There's a couple of uh, other little quotes that tickled my fancy. Just for listeners, this is called The Sweet Spot is a Great Time to Be in Government. Thomas Coughlin, Weekend Herald. In opposition, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said Grant Robertson was the worst finance minister in history. A hyperbole 
to Nationals' embarrassment, the worst finance minister in history was probably their own Robert Muldoon. Well, I don't know. I, I, still I, I, I think, them. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think um, our squealer is, is giving Piggy a bit of a run for his money. Anywho, and the other quote that I quite loved as well, heading in that direction, it fiercely disputes that these are cuts because of the benefit rates will still be adjusted upwards. However, the fact remains that National will book $2 billion in savings by paying beneficiaries less money than they are currently getting. Then there's the issue of timing. December 20, one day after the December 19 anniversary of the fourth national government's economic and social initiative, an official name for the then finance minister Ruth Richardson's dramatic benefit cuts in 1990, often erroneously remembered as the mother of all budgets, which was in 1991. Yeah, because everybody has got, you know, that date tattooed on their shoulder to remember. There is going to be some uh, discomfort and, and I, I think that uh, it's a good opportunity for New Zealanders to show some initiative. As I said, you, you can eliminate crime, you can eliminate child poverty, you can um, do all sorts of things in your street. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can. So there's all this crying, of course, the, the FPAs or fair pay agreements, and I'm going to call them FPAs because, as you have said before, you know they use this language saying it's a fair pay agreement, remembering that these agreements, none have actually happened, none have gotten across the line. It took six years for Labor to actually get them. They had them on the table in 2017. They had to rush it through on urgency at, just before they you know, left the building, Elvis left the building. They haven't actually happened. So this is a rollback of legislation. And then you have this ridiculous leak coming out of Treasury, squealing, saying that National are going to be heading off at the pass these, I can't remember the acronym for it, but the, the due process in doing these in order to get things through in the 100-day plan. Well, the reality of it is is that they're just rolling back something that, that was a change yeah, in legislation. Something, yeah, wasn't it? yeah, it was an impact. And it's like, well, actually, there is no impact at all because it hasn't actually happened. So that, to me, is just pathetic pearl clutching. But the prize winner, the prize winner for, for losing his Superman undies this week was Mike Munro. Oh, yeah, I mean, I've I've whined about Mike Munro before. Just go away, you greasy little former press secretary of. Well, his Superman and niece were obviously in the wash because he was. Oh, he was not happy this week. I've yeah, got a lot of highlighter on that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Where to start? Where to start? The article's called Trashing New Zealand's Brand for Political Gain. Again, Weekend Herald. What leaped out at you? Pretty much. Everything, I probably highlighted about two-thirds of it. I mean, at the start, so building New Zealand's brand by doing what we can to influence for the better what people think and feel about us is profoundly important. Over time, successive governments have understood that and have got on with making New Zealand a desirable place to live, visit, and do business. Now, it doesn't sound like the last six years when you were Jacinda Ardern's chief of staff, Mike. You did the opposite of all that. Mm. And then he followed it up with, and as cliched as it might be, New Zealand's reputation for innovative ideas, fairness, tolerance, and looking after the most clean and green environment, along with long-standing rankings as one of the least corrupt countries, has helped to curate this image that pulls the world in. Mm. It's like, it's, it's all an illusion, Mike. It's like an arsonist critiquing the firefighters on how they're putting out the fire. Now, who made mention to something along those lines in the last week? Oh, right. Christopher Luxon. Anyway. Yeah. 
He then goes on to say, uh, winding back smoke-free laws, going after wages and conditions of our most vulnerable, there's that word that I cannot stand, vulnerable workers, instituting a raft of measures that will dilute our maoriness, repealing the ban of offshore oil and gas exploration. The world must be wondering what has possessed Luxon's government to launch this brand-trashing spree. Mm. No, Mike, it's not the world. It is actually a certain little band and clique of elites you know, that like to pop off to Davos once a year and pop whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can really hear in this that he was, I don't know, he was fully in on the reputation Jacinda Ardern had overseas rather than the reputation she had in New Zealand. He talks about the plan to mount a review of the Treaty of Waitangi principles. At least he says principles. Credit where credit's due. Staff undoing several Māori-related policies and practices. And then he says... This will disrupt a widely held perception of New Zealand's race relations that is encountered abroad, namely that we're a tolerant people and respectful of minorities. He's on brand talking about respectful of minorities. It's that upward-facing fist of Marxism where you've got to respect the proletariat, Mm. not the petty bourgeoisie. And what he's completely forgotten in all of this, of course, is that we are a democracy. And despite what goes on in the rarefied bubble of Wellington, New Zealand has spoken. And it's spoken quite definitively. And when we think about it, and of course they keep going back and comparing, oh, you know, after the the great success of 2020, Jacinda was handed that election on a COVID platter. because Make no mistake, this is a COVID election. Exactly. Because let's not forget that only 18 months 18 months into that 2017 term, the worm was already beginning to turn in terms of popularity and uh, even the media was starting to be critical and she was starting to look shaky. She was starting to look shaky in her position. You could see that when she came back after maternity leave, that the imposter syndrome, I think, had started to set in. And then, of course, you know, we had that summer COVID happens, it just changed everything. It changed the mood of the people. And it's amazing what a solid dose of fear will do to a population in order for them to make radical and irrational decisions, which is what I believe a lot of Kiwis did in 2020. I wasn't one of them, but many did. Yeah, and many are still all for it. You know, I mean, I had my former economics teacher tell me, oh, I think they handled... uh, COVID wasn't Helen Clark. <laughs> COVID Are you well. sure? It's like Helen. I said, uh, really? And uh, I think he realised we were a little bit of an impasse. But yeah, he talks about also on the list of reputational threats is the promised repeal of the oil and gas exploration ban. Introduced in 2018, this bold move in support of New Zealand's climate change obligations was greeted with acclaim around the world. And, and this is the one that they're now... Uh, they're getting awarded Fossil of the Year or something. Yeah, um, Fossil of the Day Award at the summit. And actually, I was disappointed to see that the new climate change minister, Watts, for National, had just absolutely cucked. If you read his um, comments on that, he's got James Shaw syndrome, you know, where you, you give a narcissist an opportunity to get a round of applause, they'll trash their country. And James Shaw went around the world begging for agriculture to be included in our Paris Accord. 
agreement despite it being specifically exempted. And that's um, going to cost us something like potentially $2 billion, $2.5 billion a year, which coincidentally is the amount of money that BlackRock was going to set up to fund mm. our renewables. So we're giving money to these international socialist organizations that we then have to borrow off BlackRock, who are going to jack up our power and make short-term projects that are calculated to start crapping out when they sell them in the medium term. So Fran O'Sullivan also continued on with the theme as well. She went on a slightly different tack, but it was just uh, variations on the theme. Uh, so she has Luxon's challenge getting the business, uh, getting businesses on board. I thought it was quite interesting because I think he already has a lot of business on board. She said New Zealand needs deep reform, not more political point scoring. Well, it's politics, darling. They're going to do that whether you like it or not. You know, scorpions, remember scorpions, they will sting you. Uh, Chris Luxon's government has wiped from the political chessboard key pieces left by the Labour administration and a good deal of it, of its most distinguishing moves. I couldn't quite figure out what she was referring to there, Marty. Any ideas? Well, everything they're trashing, I guess. She actually does admit a relatively hostile news media is also giving Luxon and his ministers no quarter. Again, oh, so you see these little things creeping in, and it's starting with, yeah, I mean, Labour, but successive governments have under-invested in infrastructure, and, oh, yeah, it's going to cost more than they said, and, yeah, all that debt was bad, and it was a divisive government. She then continues on, too, to discuss, uh, and she sort of tries to draw a comparison that this government could potentially be like the Bolger government in office in 1993. However, she then sort of carries on saying whether it's growth, productivity, infrastructure capability, digital capacity, education, health or crime, the results are underwhelming. Uh, this does require fundamental reform to reboot New Zealand and take it off the path of decline. Yes, friend, that's right, it does. Luxon has also talked of wanting a partnership with business in the community to address the many challenges and turn the country around. Yes. So then she dives into a green paper that was released by Business New Zealand, and it was commissioned by a crowd called Sense Partners, never heard of them, and they were talking about what they believed, the roles that needed to go around. And this is, it says, but business also has a role. How does it make critical decisions and how does it respond to global megatrends? And it keeps talking about these global megatrends. What on earth is a global megatrend? And are they saying that if you don't carry on with what everybody else in the world wants to do, i.e. climate and insanity, you're going to be left out in the cold? Is, is this well, just what, another what, global What threat? I read into that was the global megatrend that they seem to be falling into step with is stakeholder capitalism. In essence, it recommends that businesses and politicians seek a common purpose in impending economic and social challenges. That's Klaus Schwab 101 for when you have a crisis that we've created. You know, you, you get the government and business together, which is, is fascism. Oh, um, fascism, that's right. Fasc I knew it. it was on the tip of my tongue. Exactly. Did yeah. you see also on that page? Yeah. Did you... Um, See the article IRD on the hunt for $2.3 in COVID debt. And I know we've interviewed, I think uh, Paul Brennan did an interview maybe two weeks back of a lady who'd gotten caught in that where they'd said, you didn't spend this on your business. And she'd say, well, we are a business and we needed to eat. Yeah, yeah. But $2.3 And I mean, that's on top of the billions that are owed by beneficiaries who have the same thing. It's And it's such a... Uh, 
filthy little sleight of hand loaning money so it shows as a as money on your books to balance the books but it's low just sprayed out mm. to businesses that are going bankrupt and to beneficiaries who can never pay it back well and the other thing that's happening now too is of course those covid loans went out interest free for the first i think was it a year or two years and right. then, of course, interest rates. I mean, back when those COVID loans went out, those those rates were sitting at around three and a half, four percent. Far from there now. I mean, I think the business rates are somewhere what's shy of nine or ten. They could even be more. You've got a lot of businesses that, if they did borrow that money, that's a scary place to be because well, you're now having yeah, to I mean, service a very the- expensive loan. Employers and Manufacturers Association Head of Advocacy, Alan McDonald, said he was not surprised by the figure given the tough challenges and climate for businesses. And he says a lot of those businesses just absolutely tapped out whatever reserves they had, obviously to support their own staff and themselves and keep the businesses going right through COVID. So no reserves. And do you remember those slimy little socialists around the time this first started um uh, kicking in saying, well, if a business doesn't have I- enough money to weather a couple of months of of tough times, then, you know. I you mean, shouldn't they, be in they, business. They probably shouldn't be in business. Mm. And and in the next breath, they'll moan about profits. Yeah, yeah. Which there they is, need to have a, a fat tail. And we're already seeing a number of businesses fall over. And some quite sizable ones uh, in recent months fall over. I think once, if the Christmas retail bump isn't as expected, having a business with a retail element, I can tell you right now, it is really sluggish out there. I, this is probably mm. the most sluggish Christmas I've ever seen. We are really, really having to fight and to convince our consumers that we're the place that you want to spend that dollar because they are really thinking about what they're spending. And I, I don't know about you and, and your crew, but I definitely know with the family here, you know, we've taken a really hard look over what we're spending this Christmas. We're taking some time away in the new year, which is not cheap. And we have buttoned everything right down. I mean, Mm. we are not spending very much at all because simply we don't have that discretionary income to do so. And I don't think we are alone. I think we are like many families. Well, they say figures show queries around redundancies and restructures doubled at the start of the year and peaked in May to June but now continued to be much higher than they usually were for the EMA, McDonald said. So if the number of people asking about that is doubling, ooh, that's not good. No, no, it's not. One of the things that I will be very intrigued about is to see how many businesses, if they don't get the bump, the summer bump, uh, how many will hang in there uh, once. Because I tell you what, I don't know whether you remember this from your days in business, but I can. I used to call January effing January. It was my most hated month of the business year because it was the month where they would defer GST payments because of those in retail business, right? And well, that was the reasoning, but really it's because they're all on freaking holiday and they don't want to have to deal with them. So they used to move the GST payment that would normally be made 28 December and they would move it out to 15 January. But the other thing that's also due at the end of January is provisional tax. And then you're looking down the barrel of a terminal tax payments that are also due with the end of financial it's just a cluster, an absolute yeah. cluster. And when you've got Hated. people running a country who've never, ever been in business, that just doesn't even register with them. 
No, it they doesn't. Don't. And you've got to be optimistic to be in business. And that's what they've almost cynically tapped into by loaning out this $2.3 billion. With almost zero oversight. Like, I mean, I know that when we uh, took the wage subsidy to keep things going for our staff at the time, you just literally phoned up and they just gave it to you. Well, I've got that friend who said, I didn't vote Labour, even though they gave me $70,000 when the Gisborne floods were on. And he's in the building industry. Mm. Someone said to him, oh, have you applied for the flood relief fund? And he said, well, I didn't get flooded and I'm killing it. (laughs) We're busier than ever. He said, oh, no, you can still apply for it. So he applied for it and it said, is this a Maori business? And the brother's part Maori, so he ticked yes. They gave him 35 grand, no questions, no looking at the books. And then a couple of months later, he uh, looked at his bank account and lo and behold, there's another 35 grand there. Didn't ask for it, yeah. certainly didn't need it. No, it's there has just been no due diligence done. And, it, and it's now time to pay the piper. And I think, so Nicola Willis has been talking about these fiscal cliffs. Now, what we're talking about are fiscal potholes. And there were plenty that I avoided. Believe me that I avoided between here and Gisborne uh, on Friday and Sunday. Oh, right. <laughs> as well as fiscal cliffs, there are plenty of fiscal potholes, and these will all come out to light. And again, it's like the media, that was one of the little themes that I saw. It's almost like they suddenly realised, particularly when they were talking about the infrastructure spending, Bruce Cottrell covered this off beautifully and one other, which I'll it'll come in a moment, in terms of all of a sudden that things, particularly in Auckland and Wellington, have been this absolute pit of spending and money to actually achieve sweetie fate, to be brutally honest. I mean, some of the some of the numbers that Cottrell had in his piece were eye-watering. Let's have a look here. Talking about the drive between Sarsfeld Street and Hearn Bay, I used to live on that. It's 900 metres long. It has 11 sets of aggressive judder bars, or as Auckland Transport would have us call them, traffic calming devices. I'm told each costs $300,000. I have one question, why? I have the same question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, So this, of course, Bruce Cottrell getting off the path to nowhere, past transport solutions just don't work, time for something new. And he also looked at some of the things in terms of the city rail link. I mean, the city rail link is an absolute disaster. But here's the thing. Also, there is news that once completed, the city rail link's net operating costs will start at $220 a year after the revenue collected is taken into account. So if it costs $6 billion to build, which is what he estimates it will once all the dust is settled, $265 million a year to operate and an annual revenue is projected at $44 million, who in their right mind would, would approve this as a business case? Exactly. But worse still, we're not talking about game-changing infrastructure project here. It's going to fund, that's going to fundamentally alter Auckland's lives. We're talking about a train line from Britomart and the CBD to Mount Eden, a distance of 3.4 kilometres. Mm. I'll tell you who would re- who would approve that, and I can't say whether they're in the right mind or not, is someone who believed that it was a good thing to do because climate change was too functionally enumerate to really go much deeper than that. So I'm describing, you know, mm. I guess both of our former glorious leaders. Well, so this is a really interesting thing that happened up at, was it the in Dubai, 
when you had the Sultan who was up there that actually said that there needs to still be a focus on fossil fuels. Like you couldn't walk away from those completely because you needed to have a backup when your alternative energy sources were not operating. Now, yeah, of which, course, and I talked about that article last week with yeah. the head of was it Genesis Energy saying that just as gently as possible. Hey, look, it, it, it's not realistic. No, that, it's not realistic. And the reason that you know you can have uh, Christopher Luxon saying we are absolutely fixated on zero climate two thousand and fifty, he doesn't have to worry about it. No, he'll be long gone. I just saw actually I had highlighted uh, the point that I made about the people who approve this sort of uh, thing being people who think trains good because climate change. Uh, he says, remember, the people behind these failed projects and failing organisations are the same people who have been forcing us out of our cars. In Auckland, they have taken hundreds of car parks off the street to make it difficult for us to park. Those car parks have been replaced by oversized pot plants, unused picnic tables and isolated bike stands. Footpaths have been widened and roads narrowed to limit cars. They're also making car travel about as uncomfortable as it can be. And then it feeds into that SARS yeah. road it, uh, quote. Because, of course, so much. And, I mean, John Key was lauded for his uh, National Cycleway Initiative, which was more of a tourism element. And yeah, that's, know, so that's a project for when you want a cycle. And, and they're exactly. selling us these cycle lanes as for when people want a cycle, but they're not. They're for when they force people to cycle. And this and he covers that as well. We've been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in Auckland alone to facilitate the journeys of the few two-wheeled travellers. But we're not exactly flocking to the bike lanes for obvious reasons. First, Auckland is hilly. The new very expensive bike lane between Otitha Valley Road and Constellation Drive north of Auckland is a beautifully built, but it has a couple of decent climbs, one of which is one kilometre long and reaches a 7% gradient. The average person riding their bike to work can't ride up that hill. Second, it rains a lot. Such conditions do not make for pleasant cycling. Finally, for those romantically dreaming of riding their bikes into work with the great majority of our workplaces, do not offer what are now called the end-of-trip facilities. Yes, that's the CBD's modern buildings will have bike parking, showers and lockers, but for the majority of us, such luxuries just simply aren't available. Having thrashed yourself through Auckland's hills and rain, how on earth do you intend to make yourself presentable for a day at the office. It is just not practical. Too true, Bruce Cottrell. Quite so. Yeah. Quite so. Interesting. Did you read when the chippies are down? Yeah, Did you read yes. that? Did you, know, you hear I, the uh, eye roll? Oh, uh, just, you know what I think when I read this? And I noticed on that um, on that article about Kiwis prepare to fight government, there was Sophie Handford appeared again. I've, I've raised this with, with you before, when she was leading the pro the climate protests, but she was also working at the Ministry for Economic Development in in the minister's office, so kind of protesting economic development while working in economic development. She's twenty two. She's going to be a pain in the butt. I sort of thought when I was reading this thing about Chippy as well, you know, was sort of saying. I didn't take the election result personally. I think it was a reflection of the fact that New Zealanders have had a tough time with COVID and the cost of living and a whole lot of other things, and we're just looking at something different. As I was reading it, I was thinking, dude, and I think this is about all young politicians, you really need to have that time in the fetal position 
confronting your your shadow, realizing, oh my gosh, I thought I was so good, but there's so many parts of me that lie and parts of me that are ego driven, and it's a such a dizzying thing to do. And I, I you know, you tend to do it between forty and fifty if you're healthy, earlier if you can, but it's tough to do that. And uh, yeah, that's the thing about those student, politi- the young politicians. You you listen to them talk, Waititi. You listen to them talk, and there's just not that humility that comes from the the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. And I, I that never made sense to me that saying. But eventually, you get to that point where you think everything I do matters, and so you become so much more cautious in what you do. And I would I think the best thing for for uh, Hipkins would be just to take a little bit of time and and allow maybe you were a monster and you just couldn't see it. Maybe that could be something we could wish Santa could bring a little bit of self-reflection to go with this cluster B. It would be nice if there was a bit more wisdom Mm. to balance the intellect with people all through everywhere. You have to be intelligent to make a nuclear bomb, but it's not necessarily wise. Same with stirring up racial hatred. You can do it. Might achieve your aim. Not the best thing to do. No. Where are we going next? I'm going to catch up with Karina Shields once we're done here because I want to get her take on Departi Māori and the swearing-in ceremony. And, I mean, it's sort of old news. We've all seen it. I personally deeply embarrassed by the whole thing. Mm. It's just, it was theatre, it was sideshow, it was demeaning. And I think that there are a lot of Māori out there that looked at that and went, mm, no. And, and again, it's extreme sensitivity to any insult to them and just feeling free to just trample all over Kopapa in another place that's hundreds of years old. Oh, absolutely. And also to this whole rewriting of what it is, like this whole thought of Kaupapa but also Tikanga and it's like it's it's a sometimes thing so they've had this call to arms and it ordered so to party Māori do that we talked about it last week the really inflammatory poster with two pistols and Shane was told that he didn't understand modern Māori art by Debbie Nāori Wapaka there was in the Sunday Star Times we will not back down young Kiwis prepare to fight government. And this is the effect of all that posturing. This is Virginia Fallon. As the new government's policies continue to divide, some say they've galvanised a generation to battle for their future. As This is how it starts. Jay is Māori, 23 years old, and finally happy in a body. He says God got wrong in the beginning. So you're the a re- narcissist without saying you're a narcissist. God's wrong. It's it gets better. Three, he says, I think that's what you call a hat trick. He's referencing to the different ways in which he's been targeted by new government policies. Then he lists a few more personal descriptors. He's worried about the environment, and he recently became a civil servant and catches the train to work. Basically, I'm I'm the living example of what the government wants to cancel. Lucky me. It's like winning the lottery, but the prize you get is effed over. Oh, Jay, sweetie, you, you're just about to walk a mile in my shoes for the last six years, love. Okay, so get your steps in, darling, because it's going to be a long three years for you. Yeah, I mean, less than two weeks after Aotearoa's new coalition government was sworn in, the country is facing both a review of the Treaty of Waitangi. There it is again. It's not a review of the Treaty of Waitangi, Virginia Fallon, you disingenuous little weasel. 
It's a review of the principles of the treaties. Quite a different thing. One was Hobson in 1840. The other was Geoffrey Palmer in 1980. It's the Geoffrey Palmer in 1980 that we're having a look at, darling. It's not a subtle difference. And a parliamentary debate about whether the nation should hold a referendum on co-governance with Māori. So yeah, in response to that, protest marches and convoys were organised around the country on Tuesday. And it goes on to say, Labour leader and former Prime Minister Chris Hipkins this week criticised many of the policies for taking New Zealand backwards. They reflect a view of the world that probably should have been ditched in the 60s. I love that actually following on the country on Tuesday, at least 600 demonstrators walked to Parliament grounds and more than 1,000 people gathered at other sites. And I'm thinking, is that it? Is that it, Virginia? Because I know that mm. I went to some of these protests in Wellington about some other thing, and there was a lot more than 600 people there, and you all told us we were a river of health. Yes. Anywho, it carries on over the page, and it then dives into rattle of paper. Nick Panther believes furious is a better word to describe how he's feeling. The 22-year-old voted for the first time this year and is quick to admit it wasn't for any party now in government. I get that people wanted a change in power, and that's part of democracy. Well, I'm, I'm glad you understand the concept, Nick. Excellent. Gold star for you. I'm not pissed off about that or a sore loser, but this is going too far. Painter joined the protest on Tuesday and is more than ready to be part of more. Waitangi Day is shaping up to be a flashpoint for action, he says. Pakia voices should never drown out Māori ones, but now we have to join them. That's the best thing we can do with our privilege. Make sure Tangata Whenua know they're not alone and make sure the government knows that as well. Mm. When I was, had my brief return to study uh, in a very, very woke course, uh, I, I did say, uh, do you think that it's white privilege and everyone leaned forward on their seats eager to hear me flagellate myself for being white? Their looks turned to horror when I said, do you think it's white privilege that as white folks, if something's rotten in our culture, we debate it and if it uh, isn't serving us or if it's bad, we cut it out. Whereas what we impose on Māori is this patronising idea that their culture is absolutely perfect and anything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault. We essentially take agency off them to make those changes themselves. There's a few elements of tone deafness, you know, like, and I know it's ceremonial, but taking patus uh, into parliament, which has, again, that tradition of hundreds of years of no weapons, and, uh, you know, it's a little tone deaf for a culture that, for whatever reason, beats children to death at a rate that's uh, a national disgrace that I'm more interested in hearing about in terms of its damage to our reputation than, uh, well, the other things that have been pearl-clutched about. Oh, I know. I mean, instead of uh, calling it Pākehā privilege, I'd much rather call it public service privilege because I think that's what it really is. And the article goes on saying Taryn, who, like Jay, doesn't want to her last name used due to her public service job, says the government has massively underestimated the anger and the power of her generation. They've got a fight on their hands now. Their policies are going to have the opposite effect of what they want to do. The 20-year-old says that she and her peers have been distressed, then appalled, not just by the government, by other New Zealanders' support, its policies. 
It's been a wake-up call, she says. Wellington can be a bubble of liberalism, and we've realised the rest of the country isn't like that. It's been a really depressing shock to learn how racist and conservative Aotearoa really is. I think she hasn't quite got the democracy memo yet. Well, as I said, I uh, was chatting to a a plumber who's a black South African this morning, and I said to him, are you hearing a lot about how racist New Zealand is? And he just smiled and said, New Zealand is not racist. Not at all. And I, I think that's true. I've, I've said in the past what Māori sometimes maybe uh, experiences racism, and which isn't to say that they don't face any racism. And, and certainly in the 60s and before that and even beyond, they did. Okay, so <laughs> there's an olive branch. But I think a lot of what they currently experience is racism is the visceral reaction of white New Zealanders who've got a proud cultural history of abolishing slavery to being talked to like slaves. People you can take the fruit of their labour off without reciprocity and you can denigrate their whakapapa on the basis of some historical slight and if you have a baby with one, they've got your mana, so so they're not slaves anymore. Uh, If you line the way... Māori leadership talks in the denigrating way they talk about New Zealand taxpayers, ordinary New Zealanders, and that attitude, it lines up worryingly closely. Well, and I think the other thing that they're concerned about as well is this is also to, they, Rawiri would like to have you believe that he speaks for Māori. Winston Peters has pushed back against that and says, no, you don't. You don't. And you just need to look at the current cabinet. I think there's, in the current cabinet at the moment, 35% of the current cabinet is Māori. Yeah. 25% under Jacinda Ardern. Far higher. But, but obviously, according to Rawiri, not the right kind of Māori. What well, is the right real... kind, Rawiri? Well, the right kind, I'll tell you what the right kind is. The right kind is the school of Kahawai kind, where they all think the same and they're managed by Māori leadership in a traditional way, as they were. And something that is never really discussed is that around the time of the land wars, around 50% of Māori identified themselves as aligned with the Crown or Kūpapa. They were, hey, no, bro, to their cousins who were like, we're going to, you know, don't die like an octopus, die like a hammerhead shark, you know, fight, fight, fight. And they were like, hey, you know, I'm pretty happy not having to worry about a lack of food and my neighbours coming over the hill to destroy us. You know, there were plenty of Māori who enjoyed that law and order. Although mistakes were made, I'm not saying it was perfect, a lot of those kind of Māori who I guess Rauru would think are the wrong kind, they're the ones who buggered off to Australia. They're the ones who now live in Texas, and and they're still proudly Māori, but they're individuals. They enjoy private property rights. Then this leads into the desecration of the exhibit at Te Papa on mm. Monday. Again, embarrassed. I just thought that was disgusting. I thought the, uh, was it the curator of Te Papa who came out and said they how disappointed they were because that is a space. They have that there proudly because they were creating a space to open up discussion on mm. these matters. You know, I looked at some of the coverage on this. I watched some of the TV coverage. And from what I could see, well, the ones that they were certainly dragging away, weren't a lot of Brown Brothers there. 
Oh, really? I didn't see that. Well, there was that unholy alliance between sickly, pencil-necked Pākehā Marxists and the Uluwera, let's start Hamas, Māori division kind of folks. And it's just, again, extremely disappointing. And I think they themselves will be patting themselves on the back because they've gotten to the headlines and they've scored a point and they've done all of these things and what a, what a win it is for them. I don't think, again, as that young Taryn in the previous article said, we live in a bubble in Wellington. Yes, you do. And I think you'll be surprised how many New Zealanders will be looking at that at Te Papa this week and will be going, shame, shame well, on you. The thing is we are so at cross-purposes. You know, we're not re- we haven't even defined the terms of the debate. So we're talking about different things for a start. I was really, really pleased that uh, Donna uh, Pokere Phillips came on the panel with me and Cam last week, and it, it got a bit heated. I mean, I, I've met Donna previously, and, and I got a feel for what sort of person she is. She's a really good person. She's a proud Māori. Awesome. And a former candidate for the Māori Party, so yeah, she's for, yeah. former Māori Party candidate who would be in Parliament now if she hadn't have disagreed with their jabby jabby kind of tendencies and not questioning that their alliance with uh, Big Farmer disturbed her a bit, which I thought was testament to her character. But yeah, she so yeah, I mean Cam being Cam said you know Māori means nothing to me, and she said well you live in New Zealand and it's a Māori country so you sh- should learn. Then I think later in the discussion, Paul Brennan s- said something about being less interested because you felt compelled. And I think she had a moment where she thought, actually, yeah, if the aim is to get more people to speak Māori, then maybe forcing them is going to be counterproductive. You know, we finished on a really nice conciliatory place. And and I think all of us keen to come back and have another go. I hope to get a lot more conversations like that on RCR. And I think Mm. that they're they're going to be so useful because they're just not happening. No, they're not. They're not happening anywhere else. And and I mean, with that point that uh, Paul made, and I know you and I have had conversations about this. I've just been back up in Gisborne and spent some time with family, and I have this conversation often with my aunt. And one of the things that we've often talked about, and I get frustrated because I've actually pulled back the amount of te reo that I use in my day-to-day life. I used to use quite a bit, but it was always just stuff that I'd always done. And I've actually pulled back and stopped doing it because it just all of a sudden was made with that compulsion to feel inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. It it felt like you're making a point rather than using a beautiful word or or a word that captured what you meant to say better. And I mean, our family's always used Māori words because my grandfather was fluent because he used to um, get paid by Māori road workers in the Waiwaka Gorge to read them their mail. And they told him about how their parents or grandparents had uh, told him stories about crossing the rivers without getting your feet wet on all the bodies and things like that. So you learn Māori from your Māori friends. Mm. And they it's just like when you sing, you know, when you sing off key to, with a Māori there and they wince theatrically <laughs> it's a bit like that if you you know if you keep your accent and forget the r a e o u yeah stuff. You know, so i um just earlier you probably didn't catch it but i see i have an insistence to play it's december so i'm playing christmas music the christmas the first christmas song that i've opened with and 
strap onto your boots, people, because there's another one coming. I uh, dug out uh, Billy T. James's It's a Mighty Christmas. We used to play that all the time when I was in radio in the 90s, right? All the time. It was up there. I'm pulling out all the old standards that were very, very popular back in the day. That was one of them. I don't think that one appears on mainstream media rotates because even though it's Billy T, it doesn't fit the prescribed vision that these new new Māori have of themselves. It's a brilliant song. It's happy. It's joyful. It's fun. And bah humbug to all of these. It's sort of gone the way of uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, hasn't it? <laughs> oh, see, that's what I was going to dig out for next week. <laughs> yeah, you've got to. It's so much fun. And you've got to be able to, to laugh and sing and I remember those parties. Now, now there is a segregation almost that gets forced, and that segregation is coming from that Māori elite. And I hate that wedge that they're trying to push in between families, in between communities, in between workplaces. And it's just got to stop. We just well, need to put the hands up and say no. Yeah, we're not doing. We're not playing this game anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult for Māori who disagree because. It's so easy for what they say to be misinterpreted as being anti-Māori. And I think there's probably quite a few ultra-conservative, you know, probably, you know, you know, I'd hate to brand people racist, but, you know, that that part of it who's enjoying uh, hearing Shane Jones tell uh, Waititi that he, he looked like he had a mutton bird on his head. And they might be mistaking that as being anti-Māori. It's not anti-Māori. It's, it's that... They're going to get. A, they feel that there's going to be better outcomes for Maori if they don't go into ethno nationalism and Marxist identity politics. It mm. still leaves them plenty of space to be authentically Maori, and uh, more power to them for doing that. And the thing is, with um, I just look at Rawari, and it's almost that that performance. It, it was almost like he was wearing a costume. It's laughing. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, hey, we've got some feedback, my friend. Oh, is it that time already? I know. I just looked at the time. I was like, oh, it's that time. We do have some feedback. We've got lots, actually. I'm going to do all the general feedback for counterculture and you and I. Uh, I've got this one from George. Egypt closed the southern border because they did not want Palestinians crossing into Egypt. Uh, this one, again, is from Keza. Enjoying the show. Perhaps your learned guest is unaware that Palestinians would not sign agreements due to the extreme terms demanded by Israel. This is all in regards to my interview with Anne-Marie Waters. Islam is at the gates of England and Muslim advance guard are inside the gates. That's from George. This is in regards with Anne, I interview with Anne. Conservation Department should breed an army of de-sexed cats to invade forests to kill all other pests. Oh, there's an idea. This is for you and I. You guys are awesome. Keep it up. Oh, thank you. And again for us, I read in stuff yesterday that New Zealand has elected a far-right government. Well, of course, stuff would say that, wouldn't they? Oh, dear. Oh dear. I then, of course, played uh, Fairy Tale of New York last week as um, the song going out. The song has now added poignancy, don't you think? Not a dry eye in the house. Rest in peace, Shane. You are now reunite, uh, reunited with Kirsty McCall. Merry Christmas, counterculture team. You're the best from Beth. Merry Christmas, Beth. Mm, Merry Christmas. Did you hear the interview I did with Professor Anandas Chowdhury? No. You need to listen to that. It was oh. good. You'd enjoy it. Um, Anandish had a really interesting uh, theory at the end of it in terms of the COVID response. And he his 
thing was is that instead of, instead of asking your GP whether or not you should have had the COVID jab, you should ask your GP what they're re- recommending. What they're recommending? Yeah, what they're recommending. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I think it might have been a clip. Came out as a clip. What they're doing for their family and friends, and on that, I say this: quite a few people as said, uh, Julie said, I don't trust GPs, don't have one, don't want one. Nari said, all Michelle Baker, oh, I love it, all Michelle Baker is interested in is feathering his own nest. Cynthia said, your average GP still in the system is one of the last people I'd go to for health advice and stop paying attention to mainstream media years ago, thank goodness. Uh, Steve said, trust no one, including GPs. Isn't that just so sad? It's, well, it's dangerous too. Because- it is. It is. And in the majority of uh, situations, it's worth listening to your doctor. You know, it's the problem with the idea of conspiracy theories. If you can't trust the government to give you accurate data on the health outcomes of their mandated medical treatments, then, you know, you might look up at uh, at jet trails in the sky and think, well, Maybe they are dropping nanoparticles of barium and aluminium on me. Can I trust them to tell me how dangerous Teflon is? Is the 5G network really safe? And and those are legitimate questions that we should be able to ask, and the government should present us with data rather than pejorative. Mm. This one here, whew, I don't know about this comment. Love your work, Marty, exclamation mark, and in brackets, and of course, Marie, love heart, from Kate. Relative? <laughs> <laughs> Kate's my sister. <laughs> uh, thanks, Kate. Bless. Thanks, uh, thanks, Kate. I, I, I maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, of course. We, we're all about the truth here. We are. We are. Hi, Marie. Excellent discussion with Anne Marie Waters. Thank you for your efforts from Peter. Loved your show, especially the heartwarming to hear someone speaking up for the plight of animals. That's from Ardness. Yeah, that was good, actually, Marie. I, I meant to say that to you. I, I remember doing a story. Uh, 12 years or so ago about SPCA workers uh, saying how often they go into to, uh, houses where there are mistreated animals and the kids aren't looking much better. The uh, child, youth and family, whatever it, it was called then, whatever it's called now, uh, Oranga Tamariki, were saying, oh, we're going to get a memor- memorandum of understanding together. I'd be interested to know how much further that work's gone. Not very, I would no. guess. I wouldn't have thought so. But people who are dickheads to animals, you know. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this one's for you and I. I was disgusted at the discussion. I saw the clip of Marie and Marty talking about the whistleblower data. Shameful. Sorry you feel that way, but I sort of kind of stand by it. And we've now had Barry on with Alistair. It is a pity. I will certainly, I don't, I'm not going to back down on this. I think, unfortunately, the people that presented and brought that data to the public sphere painted it and painted him in such a way that I don't think was flattering. He sounded cogent and sharp. And in fact, I learned so much more with his interview with Alistair on Monday than I did with the interviews yeah. that were done previously. And That's my five cents worth. You've got to protect your sources. Uh, there'd be a lot of people in the uh, in, in the public sector, say ACC workers, who were disproportionately uh, given exemptions from being jabbed because they were getting the phone calls. It's going to give them some pause for thought before they come out and speak. And uh, I guess if, if you're one of those people listening to to that, you know, we, we understand uh, the need to protect sources. Absolutely. Uh, one last one, of course, from Mike. Can't, we can't have a 
feedback without Mike. Uh, Mike, hi Marie. Well, wasn't Anne the Cat Lady brilliant? Yes, she was, Mike. Everything she said about desexing and how the problem should be dealt with was so on point. I can't think of a better way, and it would also be more cost effective in the long run. You were right about the love for people and their cats and how children want to pet them when they see them. This is a very loving animal who, who cared for properly, although they own you, you don't really own them. And what a lovely lady um, Anne is. Marty, it took me three very strong attempts to give up smoking in Australia. I ended up getting Champix tablets through my doctor at a time, and they were a little bit like LSD at night with weird dreams, but they did work in conjunction with the reading material. I haven't had a smoke since the 9th of February 2014. Good on you, Mike. And I don't ever want another one. I did, however, dream about smoking for a while after giving up and often woke up looking for cigarettes when I opened my eyes. Not a good look, as it was the first thing I did when I was smoking. Yuck. Mm. Uh, he also goes on here to say, Marty, bad luck uh, has always been the cause of many deaths. I'm sure it has been on many coroner reports. It would have had a lot to do with gang members shot in Auckland, and then his death was registered as a COVID death. I would have called that bad luck, surely. Marty, you really are a modern-day Juno with self-awareness. They didn't even see the shift coming in the election. They live in a modern-day Juno land with only one perspective and one side of the story. Well done, you guys, as usual. All the poignant issues brought out. I love the point about the fearless leader saying something. I feel the same way when I hear it. Poor English skills, and that's from something. the leader. Yeah, something. Oh, that's right. The leader saying something. Mm. That's right. Something I feel something. vaccinated. That's right. Poor English skills from the leader of the country. Cheers from Mike. Oh, thanks, Mike. Lots of feedback this week. And uh, just to finish off before we head away, because, of course, we were both up in Gisborne, and on Monday, and you actually did attend, was the celebration of the life of Norman McLean, who passed uh, 10 days ago. And Norman, if you are from Gisborne and you've spent any time sort of around schooling or the art scene in Gisborne, you will know Norman. Yeah. And he was a taonga that has now been laid to rest. And it, he was an incredible man. He talked Yeah, he, he re- really a bon vivant and uh, a life well lived. And uh, he, he didn't have kids. And he's one of those people who really you'd have to say, used the freedom that they had afforded him in a way that did so much for for so many young people that he, he might as well have for the influence it's it's having. Oh, massive. So uh, my brother, one of my brothers was taught by him and he had a huge impact on my life. And having lunch, my sister-in-law took classical studies from him. She said she, he made her see the world that she would never have yeah, at. no, really. Uh, he was a, he was a, a good. I thought of him as a good friend. He he roped me into being in Macbeth just before I left Gisborne, which is a wonderful experience. And I mean, he was just so all, all of those people in that theatre group, so sharp and so <laughs> so committed to to what they're doing. But yeah, my brother uh, had him as a teacher. He was at school when I was at school, but I. I'd uh, been encouraged to take science rather than classics, and in hindsight, I, I wish I'd. Uh, yeah, I'd wish I'd uh, kept up with the classics. Maybe. Yeah, I had him um, from a th- theatrical point of view. I took drama at the girls' high school, and he would uh, often come over and relieve if the drama teacher there was away. I did lots of drama back in the day, and this time of year, being Christmas, he little stories with Norm. I think I was in the sixth form. 
and he was asked to do a nativity play by the Holy Trinity Church, which is the Anglican, big Anglican church in Gisborne, and he was a congregation member. So he pulled together a cast of characters from uh, all of us around 16, 17 years old, and in fact one of the leads is now still a actor here in New Zealand, a mainstream actor in New Zealand. Instead of doing the classic nativity, because that wasn't Norm, <laughs> Norm wouldn't mm. do that, he did one called uh, The Business of God Government, and it was a satirical take on the nativity, and I was the innkeeper, the very grumpy innkeeper from Bethlehem that turfed out Mary and Joseph and threw them through <laughs> Threw them in the, the, the stables. So it, that, that was vintage norm. Rest easy, my friend. Yeah, a life well lived. Mm. We will do this all again next week. And we'll actually, I think next week will be quite reflective. We'll have a little bit of a reflection because it by this stage, cold. yeah, the gestation will be complete. It's a good nine months and we can look at the year that has been and uh, see what crops up in the papers and you know, talk about moving forward before we head away on the break. So to make sure you don't disappear, we will be back next year with Media Matters, but I will be back in just a moment with Karina Shields. So thank you very much, Marty. Yeah, thanks very much, Marie. Uh, have a good good Christmas and we'll be in touch, of course, but keep those letters coming in and uh, we're interested in hearing what you'd like to hear more about because we'll be scratching our heads a bit, I guess, and thinking what we're going to do next year. Indeed, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is email. Karina Shields coming up here next. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Mm-hmm. 